Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and I'm very pleased to have as my guest in this programme, Edward Dusenberry, first violinist of the Tokach Quartet, and author of Beethoven for a Later Age, The Journey of a String Quartet. Edward joined the already legendary Tokach Quartet in 1993, a young Englishman fresh out of the Juilliard School, alongside three Hungarians who had been playing together for years. He was the first newcomer of any nationality to join the group, and by his own admission had much to learn about the life of a quartet. His book describes the life of one of the world's leading string quartets from the inside, its challenges and satisfactions, its tragedies and triumphs. Edward takes Beethoven's quartets as the lens through which to view the quartet, for reasons which perhaps need little explanation. As he writes in the book, no one has ever written a group of works that pose so many questions about the form and emotional content of a string quartet, and come up with so many answers. One of the delights of Ed's book is hearing how the Tokach Quartet in turn come up with ways of presenting listeners with Beethoven's questions and answers on the concert platform and in the studio. But to begin at the beginning, when I met Ed just before Christmas at the Faber offices, I started by asking how he had envisaged his career when he was a music student. I had no idea exactly how my career would, would work. I was doing some solo playing, I won a couple of competitions. Chamber music was something that I associated with, with fun by and large. Uh, I had a nice student quartet at college and we got to play some concerts and also played a lot in the family at Christmas time, Boxing Day, we, we all got together with cousins and hacked through Mendelssohn Octet and piano quintets and all this sort of thing. But I knew it would be really hard to form a string quartet and maybe didn't quite have the courage to do that. So when I was at Juilliard, I was just very lucky the timing of joining the Tokach uh, came exactly when I was wondering, do I stay in America? Do I go back to England? Um, what sort of people would I like to play with? It was just very lucky timing. So it must have been quite intimidating when you were preparing for that audition, though, because a quartet of four Hungarians, a generation older than you, really well-established, really high reputation. How did you kind of approach that audition? I was completely intimidated by the idea of it. At the same time, I felt, I think when you're young, you're more arrogant in a way, you're more cocky, and you don't kind of realise quite what's at stake. And I did even so recognise what was at stake for the Hungarians who'd been, in a way, it was a much more nerve-wracking process for them than for me, and I could see that. So I just tried to prepare very hard, but I think that's actually in that process where I first got interested in reading around the works, trying to find out as much as I could about the biography, the composer, the circumstances that the pieces were written, because I felt I have to, in some way, compensate for, for my lack of experience. I'm going to go and work with these guys who've played this stuff for 18 years, but maybe I can at least bring a few fresh bits of information or, or something. So I started reading right then for the audition, and that actually helped make me feel a little bit more confident. When you audition for a quartet, you don't stand on a stage and perform a, a solo piece to demonstrate your technique. You are, you're plunged into the body of the quartet. So what, what was that first experience sitting down with those players like? It was thrilling to sit down in the studio at the university in, in Boulder, partly because there were three players who I suddenly realised they actually wanted me to play well. And that's a very unusual experience when you're that age and you're doing auditions. Generally, people try to make as discouraging an atmosphere as possible to sort of see if you're up to it. 
So they were all very friendly. They're very open. They'd given me a wide range of repertoire to play. They let me decide which order I wanted to play it. And I felt just immediately that it was about the music making. It didn't really feel like I was on trial. It felt like here are three guys who just, they want to have fun making music. They want to communicate ideas right away. They're curious about me. I'm curious about them. So in fact, it was as, as soon as we sat down, I didn't feel intimidated. It just felt like an adventure then. And, and I was very inquisitive and just curious to see where it would go. When the first violin leaves a quartet, the second violin doesn't bump up. So you were sort of auditioning for the, the leader's chair. Can you say a bit about what, what the leader's role is in a string quartet? Because in some ways it's, a, it's very democratic. And, but are you primus inter pares? It's a really good question. I think the the role of a of a I don't even like to think of it now as a leader, and it, I think so. I prefer to describe myself as first violinist. At the same time, when I joined, certainly the others were very clear that there were certain particular duties that they wanted me to have, and that that was partly the structure of rehearsal. How much time are we going to spend on a particular piece? Just to have a plan of how we organise our time. They they certainly wanted me to have a lot of musical ideas. But I think as I grew into the role, I brought some other aspects to that. And I, it's, it's almost more like being a chair of a, of a group of people that you hopefully try and provide a space where everyone's ideas can be heard and you can then thrash them out and, and work it out. And I'm, I'm not sure that I'm always successful at that. Perhaps sometimes I push my own ideas too much. But in, in general, that's the goal. But that's something I didn't, wasn't so aware of when I first joined. They made it clear they wanted someone who was going to be confident and strong and authoritative. And of course, as a 24-year-old, I didn't feel any of those things particularly. So it was a certain amount of play acting that went on. And you very amusingly describe your clothing and your body language when you reach the, the second stage of the audition, which is a public concert. And you, 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 you appear, well, you portray yourself a little bit as a fish out of water, maybe. Yes, I I did feel very much a fish out of water. This is a place in the book where I describe first seeing a video of myself with the others and having felt that it was had gone very well and then being really shocked by how different I looked to these three relaxed, dynamic Hungarians who had this very easy body language between each other. And by contrast, I looked uh, very rigid and, yes, a fish out of water. I didn't feel so much that way and so I realized um, right away that there was there was going to have to be some work in terms of how I was communicating physically and the body language all that sort of thing. Was there a sort of process of magyarization that took place if I can put it that way because I was very amused also that um, one of your recordings of, of the Bartok quartets someone said this could only have been performed by true born Hungarians but you, you were playing the first violin. Yeah, I, I felt a lot of pressure in that respect when I first joined the quartet because back then I think it was more common for quartets to have a national identity. So that was a definitely a Hungarian quartet. There'd been an encouraging precedent in the sense that the Tokyo Quartet had, had already chosen a, a young Canadian violinist who joined and they'd been very successful. Yeah, I, I made some rather sort of cheesy attempts to be more Hungarian. I sort of grew my hair long, which didn't really convince anyone. And, uh, you know, just... You started eating gulag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just those sort of more superficial things uh, at first, because really you're just trying to work out how to find your role. And I think I talk about in the book the difficult balance because I was expected to bring a strong musical personality 
and a lot of variety of character on stage and, and in a way sort of stamp my personality on the group. That was one expectation because my predecessor had, had a very dynamic, engaging stage presence as a wonderful musician. But at the same time, you have to blend and fit in and be part of a, an organism that's been there for the last 18 years. And that's a very daunting prospect. How do you do both? Because if you just concentrate on the blend, then you seem like wallpaper. And if you just come in and do your own thing, then you don't fit in with what's there. So the reality is it just takes time. We've been very lucky. There are particular promoters, friends who recognize that. And so they, they, they were willing to give me time and the group time. Other people immediately say, oh, well, that's not going to work. And then hopefully two, three years later, they might be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, they used the word organism. And organism seems a very good word for it because it does seem like a, a living, breathing thing that is more than the sum of its parts and, and very hard to, to characterize because it's got this complex network of identities. Yeah, but that's also the fascinating thing about the, the group. And ever since I sat down with them, I think that's what I hadn't realized is that is how much things change even within the process of a rehearsal. And that's still all these years later. Again, it's something I talk about in the book is the way at a stage rehearsal, you can tweak details and you can try a different idea. And if you have confidence in each other, then that, that can lead to a different interpretation on stage. So, and the organism is also related just to how each individual feels on a particular day. And, and we all know each other very well. And Maybe on a particular day I haven't slept quite enough or I've got a cold or something. But then the others can kind of step up in different ways and provide support. And that's that's one of the really nice things about a quartet is that you don't have to feel lonely if you're having a tough day. You've got three people to kind of help get you into a better frame of mind. Yeah, that, that responsiveness was, was fascinating because you say that sometimes sometimes things will happen in the performance that don't necessarily match what you were doing in rehearsal, but that just something happens in the performance and maybe someone suggests a particular way of developing how they're playing and, and others will not copy, but, but somehow respond to that. So there's a real live interaction. So it's not just a rehearse it, rehearse it, rehearse it, and then do it on the stage. That's exactly right. And I think that's, that's critical to why live performance matters, that you don't want to be just setting something in a rehearsal space and taking it out onto stage and in that respect we're I think quite like actors I have several friends who are actors and they always complain if they're working with someone who is not listening in the moment then and that's their expectation that if they're on stage and they modulate their voice a bit differently or they use a different gesture they want to see that reflected in what happens on the stage around them and it's exactly the same for chamber music. When you decided to write about the quartet and your experience of the quartet why did you choose to do it through the lens of Beethoven? Why, did, why was that the way you wanted to, to tell the story? Uh, there's a couple of reasons. Beethoven's work was probably the most daunting to me in the early stages. I found it the most difficult to understand. Technically, it was very hard. I'd played one of the Razumovsky quartets at my first audition. And then I found very reassuring the experiences of the first players and the first audiences of that music, that they also had difficulty. And because of that reassurance, I, I started to think, well, that's a, that's a good theme for me. And I ended up feeling that that sense of shock and disorientation that you can get from a piece of music is not something that you need to feel ashamed of or that you're a, you're a failure or you're not up to the task. Quite, quite the reverse, that actually from that comes an understanding of the music and an experience that's that's integral to it that Beethoven 
should never feel like it's a comfortable walk in the park. So I think his music also is so full of contrast and contradictions, and he does manage to create a sense of unity, but only just at times. And that seems to me is also true of the organism of the string quartet, that you've got four individuals with strong personalities. It's not an interesting group if everything's completely unified and everyone's pulling exactly in the same direction. So we're always balancing that issue of contrast. So I I think there's that. He also developed so much as a composer and had such a remarkable life journey that that drew me to write about him in particular. And the quartets very much reflect that, don't they? They present some of his most intense, searing, challenging, complex and beautiful music. Yes, and right away from the Opus 18, sometimes the early quartets are a little bit looked down on because people think, oh, that's just early Beethoven. But right away, he's got these radical experiments. And and I talk about that in the book. Sometimes you can see just something in a, in a small minuet and trio where the trio is suddenly really explosive and totally different from what you would expect from a middle section of a third movement. And that idea you'll see him coming back to several times, you know, 15, 20 years later. So yeah, there's, there's a massive development between uh, the, the middle quartets really written for public space and much more dramatic, much longer sense of form and then the late quartets, which are staggering in their in the variety of moods and textures and just ideas jumping off the page. And I suppose, without wishing to denigrate Haydn or Mozart, with Beethoven, the quartet really becomes challenging both to the amateur player and to audiences. It really sort of takes it to a different level of intensity, doesn't it? Yes, and you see it's not a coincidence that Count Razumovsky decided that he needed to have a quartet in residence at his palace partly because he observed the difficulties in the music and the fact that the musicians would benefit from having a lot more time to rehearse. And he would sometimes play the second violin part himself, but that, that got beyond him. I think that's right. I mean, he, he like many of, the, of Beethoven's patrons, was a keen musician himself. But at a certain point, he must have decided this was getting a bit difficult for him and maybe interfering with his um, rather extravagant socializing as well so yeah so he he let another violinist come into his resident quartet and i think that would have been a relief for the players honestly because to have to work with someone who is also your benefactor in a quartet that would be an awkward dynamic i think and was it was it the cellist that um beethoven said of the third razumovsky quartet this is this is music for a later age because the cellist had expressed dissatisfaction with her a repeated B-flat rhythm that um, just seemed a bit... You, know, you couldn't quite see what the point of it was. Well, that's... Certainly, there were, there were two different stories which I, which I talk about in the book, and, and there was a, a cellist who had to... who hated the beginning of the second movement where he had a little solo just all on one note, and as the anecdote goes, he threw his music on the floor and stamped on it. But I think Beethoven made this, this famous comment where I got my title for the book, Beethoven for a Later Age, about a violinist who accused him, these Opus 59 quartets, he accused Beethoven of writing not music. So Beethoven said in reply, they are not for you, they are for a later age. And so that's that's where the idea came f- for the title of the book. 
But as you say, you hate the idea of them being tamed and domesticated. And I think you say in the book, not the reassuring part of the the program that will help an audience deal with more cha- more challenging and in inverted commas, you know, later music. You you really don't like that idea that if we are the later age, then it's all settled and and nicely packaged and um, nothing nothing more to to worry about. Exactly, and I suppose by Beethoven for a later age, part of me thinks that the music should always feel like it's going to be for a later age. There's always elements in it that are going to challenge us and make us feel not quite that we understand what's what's going on so yeah absolutely i don't at some level i don't think well this is the age where beethoven feels comfortable uh, at the same time of course he'd be very gratified that his prediction obviously came true so how do you bring that out in performance this sense that beethoven is still unsettling he is still challenging it's a very good question and it's probably the element that we think about the most when we're rehearsing and it's a range of things. It can be down to details. Uh, how do you make a, a a transition so that it sounds really surprising, a change of character? You, you might make a very sudden change of sound or just in the way that you characterize the music. And, and that's back to the immediacy of the performance as well. The, the, the sense of spontaneity on stage, I guess, is important. You've done in the past cycles of the complete 16 Beethoven quartets, and you've got another one, I think, coming up in 2016 obviously a lot of logistics goes into that but what, what other sort of thinking goes into that you know sort of musical aesthetic thinking into deciding to do another Beethoven cycle it's daunting to do a Beethoven cycle and so one of the things that we are very careful of is the amount of other repertoire that we play so we kind of clear the decks a little bit we don't play very much other music and we'll it feels like you just immerse yourself very thoroughly in that music for a 12 month period in a way it's the best way to approach the quartets because then you see more of the connections. You see a little cheeky bit of dialogue in an Opus 18 quartet, a sense of humor. You see that maybe becoming something a little bit more savagely satirical in a Razumovsky quartet. So you, you see the, the journey much more carefully. One of the um, things that's challenging is just the sh- sheer physical uh, effort of playing three Beethoven quartets in an evening. I mean, you would like to say this about any piece of music, but the reality is with Beethoven quartets, there's not one moment on the stage that you can really sit back and relax. There's just always this kind of expectancy and sense of character change in the music that means you have to give of yourself immensely. So it's like training for a marathon or something. You just, you're very aware for the year before and you kind of get into physical shape and you hope you're in mental shape as well. After the rehearsals are over, how do you mentally prepare yourself in that sort of last half hour before the concert? What are you, what are you actually doing? Are you warming up or sitting still? Or? It's a sort of a, a mixture of things and we all have slightly different ways of doing this. It amuses us all in the, in the green room at the Wigmore Hall that Andras, our cellist, carves out a little corner in the room, which is his, and he even puts up sort of furniture around it which is I think not so much to keep us out as when the audience comes back he doesn't want anyone to be standing on his cello maybe it is a little bit to keep us out who knows so he I think for him he definitely wants a kind of a quiet space that's in that half an hour before the concert for some of the rest of us it varies sometimes uh, we've all got quite silly senses of humor and there's a certain amount of kind of clowning around that goes on when you're doing something as serious as a string quartet you need to have some kind of release. And uh, uh, I, I shouldn't probably admit this, but sometimes if we're in a 
we wouldn't do this in the Wigmore because it's a very beautiful green room. But if we're in a sort of area with a rather run-down backstage area and we happen to have been given a bunch of grapes or some such thing like that, we might take a rubbish bin and put it on the far side of the room and kind of throw <laughs> grapes at it. You know, it's just something to... It's childish, you know, and in some, somehow... You need to be immature. I need to be immature every now and again if I'm going to play a Beethoven cycle because you just it, it, the responsibility otherwise is a little overpowering. Given the intensity of the relationship on stage, but also off stage, how do you how do you get the balance right between not just being in each other's company too much and finding that overpowering? We've over the years established quite a good balance. It may seem a little weird from the outside, but we don't really socialise that much together. And while we will often rent a minivan and travel around in very close proximity. When we're on an airplane, we definitely don't sit next to each other. We have seats well separated. And similarly, if we have a free evening, it's pretty unlikely that we're all going to be calling each other up and going out for dinner. I think that's different for young quartets. I think when you when you first set out, there's that kind of new adventure of being on the road together and you don't maybe know many other people. And so... That's that's changed over the years, but I think we have we we have a pretty healthy sense of space. Why do you think composers have not just Beethoven, but many composers have committed some of their most serious, intense thoughts to the quartet form rather than rather than other forms which are available? There's something distilled about the string quartet. It's like music is reduced to its most basic elements, the the four different lines, and somehow that seems to maybe free up composers to be more experimental and of course Beethoven was the was the expert at that but Haydn before him as well particularly with in a way reinventing and developing how the different voices could talk to each other on the stage different types of dialogue Beethoven did it with with form I think there's I think there's a lot of flexibility in the medium and then as soon as you've got Beethoven then that raises the challenge i mean that's people look at and i think actually it was extremely hard someone like brahms who ended up ripping up so many quartets before he even allowed three to be published because he was so daunted by the originality of, of what had gone before but then you you see in bartok with his very unusual use of colors weird pizzicati kind of glissandy sliding around on the fingerboard and these kind of spectral sounds uh you see him finding his own way to be original. So it's it's partly now that it's a tradition, you know, that there's so many great examples of composers doing that, that any composer who takes it on would feel that they were somehow missing the genre if they didn't try something rather radical. How important is it not only that each player has a fine instrument, but what, what would account for these instruments working together well as instruments? Obviously the players account for a lot, but what, what, how important are the instruments themselves? The instruments in a, in a quartet are extremely important and they need to be very versatile. I think maybe there's this, there's a preconception that just because it's a small group, you know, you, you just need instruments that are, they don't have to have such a large sound or maybe they just need to blend. The reality is you need maybe more versatile instruments because you need instruments that can one moment blend and sound just as one of a larger group and then in the next be able to come out incredibly clearly as a solo melodic line so yeah we, we're very lucky we've come to these instruments uh, over a number of years but i think maybe 
it's got the most to do with the players and the kind of tonal priorities that a different player has. I mean, it's amazing if you hear the same instrument played by four or five different violinists, how different the instrument will sound because each violinist has their own ideal sound that they imagine. And so they pick up the instrument and certain things in the instrument appeal to them because of their own imagination. And then they bring out those special characteristics, whereas another player will have a, a different idea and then bring out those different so yeah the in, instruments have been extremely important and, and again it's sort of like the personalities in the quartet you need to be able to both blend and be cooperative and then on occasion really be very individualistic so that's what you're looking for and if you had a a, a recording that Tokach made before you joined it could you instantly say oh yes that's them and what, what would what would the fingerprint be if so Actually, it's funny you should ask that because I did recently hear on the radio a recording of the Dokhnani piano quintet with, with the Tokach in its original form with Andras Schiff. And I knew it couldn't be me playing because we haven't recorded it. Uh, we will be recording it quite soon. But that was, that was really nice because I felt that the, what I heard in the whole concept of the sound and the communication of character was actually was very similar. So I, I liked that. I think. I think of that original group as being completely fearless. You know, they, they, I think partly because of their background, where they came from, the difficulties of defecting and moving to America, they had a very high tolerance for risk. They were always doing crazy things on the road. I remember when we, when I first joined and I didn't seem to have an air ticket from one day to the next, how to get from a concert in the north of France to the far south of France. And they said, oh, no, no, we're not, we're not flying. We're, we're going to go out for dinner with the promoters and then we'll drive through the nights and we'll get to the south of France about three in the afternoon. We can nap for an hour and then play a concert. And, and they didn't think anything of it. I mean, it was just part of the itinerant, crazy way of life. When I joined, I had a hard time adjusting to that and we've maybe become a little more cautious with the way that, <laughs> the way that we travel, which is my effect on it. But, I, yeah, I think of these sort of group of... Um, just very enthusiastic, fearless young Hungarians out to conquer the world in a certain way. And I think you hear that in, in their recordings. How we've changed, it's not for me really to make comparisons. I think inevitably if you sustain a career over a very long period of time, you perhaps have to be judicious about how you, how you channel your energy. I mean, you can't just do that all the time, otherwise you burn out. So probably over the years we've, we've found how to pace ourselves, but hopefully still have the same sense of adventure actually in the music making. You've been in the quartet for over 20 years. It's clear from the book, it's not a job, it's a life. Mm. Can you conceive of a life beyond the Tokach? Well, that's a, it's a really good question. In a way, I, I have to because I'm the youngest person in the group by 15 years or so. And I have become so attached to working with with the group, with these particular players in the group as well, that I I don't really fancy the idea of continually reinventing a group, bringing new people in. I think there's a certain identity to this group that comes from the people who are in it. So I think it's easier just to live in the present and just enjoy our concerts, hope that we can keep this going as long as we can and... Uh, it, it, the thing is that it, uh, being in a string quartet, it is so all-consuming that, no, you can't really imagine what it would be like not to do that. And so probably it's just best not to and just, just run with it. 
I was talking to Edward Dusenberry about Beethoven for a Later Age, The Journey of a String Quartet, which is published by Faber in January 2016 in hardback and is also available as an e-book. For more information about the book, visit faber.co.uk. On the Faber channels on Vimeo and YouTube, you'll also be able to find a short video of Edward talking about writing the book. You can make sure you never miss the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Just go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Or you can explore the whole podcast archive on SoundCloud. It now amounts to over 100 hours of interviews. Just search for Faber Books SoundCloud. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Thank you.